Good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you've got your Bible, I'd invite you to open it up to 1 Samuel, the 14th chapter. That's where we're going to begin in just a moment. I've got my Bible ready to go. As tonight, we're going to do something uh, a little bit different, or at least different in the sense that uh, we haven't got to do it in a little while um, since this uh, pandemic has started and we haven't had our regular Sunday evening assemblies. We've, of course, been having our uh, Sunday night Bible studies that have been led and conducted by my dad in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we finished Hebrews uh, last week, and so next week we're going to begin some Something new, and so in the interim, uh, I wanted to get to do a little bit of Q and A. That is always a. Uh uh, a favorite here at Lakeside. It's kind of a staple of uh, part of the teaching that we do here, and uh, I'm excited to have the opportunity to do that. I haven't got to do that in a couple of months. This is not live Q&A where folks from the audience just submit questions right here on the spot. I'm, of course, in an empty building right now, and so uh, there isn't anybody here to even ask those questions. Uh, these are questions that have been submitted to me over the course of, I don't know, the last uh, several years. I've been compiling a list of questions. I've been trying to get to those, and those continue to be submitted by our members here, by uh, our kids and our uh, kids of members, even folks outside the congregation get emails and uh, questions that are asked from time to time, and would you consider entertaining these? And that's what this format is about, is about just kind of working through some Bible questions, things that pertain to the text of Scripture, things that pertain to just cultural issues going on in life, uh, or maybe just quandaries and queries that we have uh, and wanting to know if the Bible has some answers to those things. And so I'm ready to do that this evening, and tonight what is kind of a little bit unique is that uh, in previous installments of our Q&A, uh, the questions have usually revolved around a particular theme. Uh, tonight, that is not the case. I'm going to just do kind of what I'm going to call a variety pack of questions. I always enjoy getting those variety packs of potato chips, Lay's potato chips. You get Lay's and the barbecue, and you get the Cheetos and the Doritos, and man, it's just nice kind of having a smorgasbord to choose from. And tonight, we want to just do a variety pack of questions. Got three questions on tap that I'm going to work with. And really, if there is even any kind of a, of a unifying theme amongst all of them, it's just what's said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, where Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We believe that the Bible is able to equip us with everything that we need to know in order to navigate through this life and in order to get to heaven. And so we're going to try our best to just use the answers that this book supplies to try and provide uh, some navigation for us with these particular questions tonight. And so, if we can, let's just begin by reading in 1 Samuel, the 14th chapter. I'm reading here beginning in verse 24. In 1 Samuel 14, beginning in verse 24, the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared that oath. Verse 27, But Jonathan, Saul's son, he had not heard his father charge the people with this oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and he dipped it in the honeycomb and put it in his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. I'm going to use that as the jumping off point for this first question tonight about rash and foolish vows. 
If you know the rest of this story in 1 Samuel chapter 14, drop on down to verses 43 and 44, Saul actually says, hey, I made this vow, I made this oath, and well, Jonathan broke it, and so Jonathan must die because of this stupid vow that I've made. And of course, the people end up stepping in and saying, no, Saul, we're not doing that. And that, of course, is really just a perfect illustration of what we're talking about with this idea of a rash and foolish vow. Sadly, I must tell you that this is not the only one recorded for us in Scripture. I'm thinking, for example, about Jephthah in Judges chapter 11. He vows to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house, and that turns out to be his daughter. And we can talk at another time as to whether he actually sacrificed her or not. That's another Q&A for another Q&A. Or maybe I'm thinking about Joshua in Joshua chapter 9 when the Israelites, they vowed that they were going to preserve the Gibeonites, but they did that without first consulting God. And that ended up coming back to bite them a little later on. Or I think about in the New Testament, Herod, how he vowed to give Herodias' daughter whatever she wanted in Mark chapter 6. And that resulted in the beheading of John the Baptist, which Herod ultimately regretted. Those are all foolish and rash vows. So the question is, what do you do when you've made some big promise to God, but fulfilling that vow is either unrealistic, or maybe even worse, what if it requires you to do something that is sinful and wrong? Well, let's just work through that with a couple of key ideas. Uh, first and foremost, the thing that I really want to say right up front and emphasize right out of the gate is this. And that is that biblically, if you make a promise to God, you better keep that promise. That is the general rule of Scripture. If you make promises to God, you'd better keep them. In Psalm chapter 15, I love what's said here about the, the man of God, the truly godly person. Notice the end of verse 4. In Psalm 15 verse 4, the godly man is the one who swears to his own hurt and he does not change. One translation renders that, he keeps an oath even when it hurts him. And there are a number of other passages in the Bible that would just line right up with that idea of someone keeping their promise and living up to their word even when it's painful. In fact, let's just stay right here in the wisdom literature. Would you jump over to Ecclesiastes, please? In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the wise man says specifically here in verse 2, in Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 2, Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Drop down to verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? That's some pretty powerful language there. Vowing is serious business in the Bible. If you tell God you're going to do something, you'd better do it. That is the rule. That is the standard. Pay what you vow. And Jesus, of course, picks up on that in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 5, 
In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, notice what Jesus says about vows and making oaths and things of that nature. In Matthew chapter 5, I'm reading here in verse 33, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You realize that in the context there, Jesus is dealing with all of these kind of games that the Pharisees had come up with to try and skirt around the vows that they would make. They'd say, oh, well, you, you didn't say by Jerusalem, so, so it doesn't count. Or, yeah, oh, well, hey, I, I didn't say by heaven, so, uh, so really that was all null and void what I said back there. It's kind of like when you were a kid and you made a promise and then someone calls you out on that and they want to cash in on that promise and you say, oh, no, well, it didn't count what I said because, well, because I had my fingers crossed behind my back. Jesus says that's ridiculous. God's people don't do that. We pay what we vow. And so that's the rule. And I am going to say something here in just a moment about an exception. But sometimes we're too quick to jump to the exception without first establishing and understanding the rule. The rule is we need to be people of our word. But secondly, I need to say as well that if fulfilling that vow involves sin, then you should not do that. You shouldn't. You should just not do that. And I want to see if I can borrow from Moses to try and help articulate that principle that there can be occasions where it would be better to break a vow. I'm looking here in Leviticus 27. In Leviticus chapter 27, here's a great illustration of how the law of Moses had provisions so that you could redeem and and pay out of a vow, so to speak. In Leviticus 27, beginning in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, that is, here you're going to vow a person to God, and that might seem strange to us, but think about how Hannah, she vowed to devote Samuel to the Lord. That's kind of what we're talking about here. Verse 3, Then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And if the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. And if the person is from 5 years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels, etc., etc., etc. On and on that goes. The whole chapter is almost about how if you vowed something to God, well, here were the procedures, here was the value, the amount, for how you could redeem and buy it back. Which, by the way, says an awful lot about Hannah, doesn't it? Hannah did not say, oh... Oh, well, my boy Samuel, how much is it to redeem my little boy back that I vowed to the Lord? No. No, Hannah paid what she vowed. And, by the way, again, this may also say something to us about Jephthah. How come Jephthah didn't redeem his daughter when he made that foolish vow about her in Judges chapter 11? Well, it may be because he was just entirely ignorant of the law of God here in Leviticus 27, which would certainly fit with how things really were during the time of the judges. But Leviticus 27 allowed for getting out, buying out of certain vows. Let me add to that what's said in Numbers chapter 30. 
In Numbers chapter 30, here's a whole chapter that's just devoted to foolish vows. You know, what were you supposed to do if a foolish vow was made in your house by maybe a member of your family? Is that binding? Is there any way that that can be broken, get out of that? And so, for example, I'm looking here in Numbers chapter 30, look in verse 3. In Numbers 30 and in verse 3, If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge, while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself, and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. Do you see that? That's our first principle. That's the rule, that if you vow a vow, you're supposed to pay it. You're supposed to do it. But notice the exception that's given in verse 5. But if her father opposes her on that day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. So for example, here's your daughter in your house. And maybe she makes some not very well thought out. She makes a foolish vow. Maybe she says, hey, we're going to give all of our cattle, we're going to give all of our entire farm to the service of the tabernacle. And dad cheers that and he jumps and he says, oh no, 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 hold on there. Wait a minute now. We're, we're, we're not doing that. Honey, I appreciate your devotion to the Lord, but, but, but we can't be doing all of that. Well, the law provided an out in that circumstance. And there are many others like that that are outlined in this chapter. And so what I simply want to say, the, the principle that I want to articulate that I think is being set forth in these passages is that vows do not always stand. And that includes even in these cases, vows to the Lord. They do not always stand. But can I have you notice again there in verse 5? Notice what it says about her. It says about the girl who made the foolish vow. It says... The Lord will forgive her. Do you see what that's saying? If you vow foolishly something that you can't keep or maybe even something that you won't keep, this indicates that that is sinful, that you did a wrong thing. You can't just write that off as, oh, well, that was just a little bit of folly on my part. That's just no big deal at all. No. You'd have to seek out the Lord for His forgiveness. You'd need to repent of what you did. And that is especially true if that vow or that pledge would lead to sin. We should not keep that vow if it's going to lead to sin. We should repent of making a rash vow and then stop right there. Because we cannot and we will not let one sin lead to another. And so this would be like somebody saying, Oh, well, well I vowed once upon a time that I was going to give a million dollars to the Lord, but... But since I don't have a million dollars, I'm going to go rob a bank so that I can keep my vow. No. Or somebody else says, you know, I got really angry at my coworker the other, the other day. And I said, I said, I swear to God, I'm going to kill you. And so, since that was my vow, I swore that to God, then, then that means I'm going to have to commit murder in order to keep my vow. No. Or maybe to give a more realistic illustration... Here's a person who says, I'm in an unscriptural marriage. Me and this other person, we don't have a right to be married. This relationship is sinful in the eyes of God. But you know, we made vows before the Lord that we were going to be husband and wife until death do us part. And so I guess we need to stay in this relationship in order to keep that vow. No, 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 a thousand times no. Don't let one mistake lead you into another. 
And so the general rule of Scripture is that when you make a promise, you need to pay what you vow. But if what you vowed is sinful and wrong, if it is wicked and it's going to lead to more wickedness, then don't make matters worse by compounding sin with more sin. Instead, confess that to God. Ask for His forgiveness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us He is faithful and He is just to forgive us of our sins if we'll confess them. And then, stop making rash vows. Indeed, as the wise man says in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 25, don't fall into the trap of making promises to God before you think. I think that's a pretty sober warning for us as we think about this idea of vows. Well, let's move on to a different question. This is actually a textual question. If you'd be finding 2 John in your Bible, because I've got a question here about the recipient of John's second epistle. And the question is this, who exactly is this elect lady in 2 John? Well, if you'll just look and find that short little epistle, there's only one chapter in 2 John. It begins right there in verse number 1. In 2 John and in verse 1, John writes this. He says, The elder, seems to be talking about himself, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. In fact, drop on down to verse 4 when John goes on to say, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady... There's that reference once again. There's even a final reference that uses another feminine description there at the end of the letter in verse 13. The children of your elect sister greet you. And so the question is, who is this elect lady that the letter is addressed to? Well, let me give you a couple of different options, and then you can decide which one of those sounds most persuasive to you. There is an argument to be made that this is actually a proper name here. It's translated elect lady, but some have suggested that the Greek terms that are found in this text may actually be the name of an actual woman named Electa or Kyria, that's for the word uh, lady there, Kyria, Kyria, not sure exactly how to pronounce that, uh, but that perhaps this is a prominent woman in the congregation to whom John is writing, and he's telling her and talking to her, and he's speaking specifically to her, which, if that were true, that would make this the only book in the Bible that I'm aware of that is specifically addressed to a woman. Now, one commentator actually suggested that the elect lady is Mary, as in Mary the mother of Jesus. You'll remember that Mary the mother of Jesus, she was entrusted to John's care at the cross, and so perhaps this is maybe an affectionate term that John is using to address her. I must tell you that while these options certainly are possible, the letter itself, when you read it, when you read all 13 verses, it really lacks the feel of being written to a person. There's lots of plural nouns used here in 2 John. There's lots of y'alls. Y'all do this. Y'all do that. Uh, verse 8, for example, says, Watch yourselves. Another verse talks about loving one another. So th this letter seems to be written to a group, which is why I am more inclined to say that the elect lady is a metaphor for the church. And you should know that that is not entirely foreign to Scripture. 
Think about in the Old Testament, Israel is often referred to as a woman. Uh, Jerusalem is considered to be the mother of all Israel. And then probably most well known to us in Ephesians chapter 5, the church is described as the bride of Christ. And then, of course, that term elect, well, that's very commonly applied to Christians. Romans 8, verse 33, 2 Timothy 2.10, and lots of other places in the New Testament. And so I'm kind of persuaded to say that this is a description that John is using for the church. Now, there is an objection to that. You get to reading about this, you'll find the objection. The objection to that answer is, well, if the elect lady is the church, then who are her children? You know, verse 2 says, to the elect lady and her children. I mean, come on, how can the church have children? God has children. Christians are the children of God, but there's nothing in the Bible about being children of the church. Well, i got to tell you, I, I really think that that's making more of this figure than John intended. I think John is simply using this metaphor of the elect lady and her children to just speak here of the idea of the family of God that was in that location, in that locale, to whom he was writing. Now, it is possible that John is actually using this type of language as maybe sort of a cover during a time of persecution. There was, of course, lots of persecution going on in the first century. And John may be using kind of some some code language here so as not to implicate anyone by name in a written letter. Think about it. If this letter, if this epistle had been intercepted by Roman authorities and they knew who it was written to by name, then it might mean trouble for that person. It might mean imprisonment or death for the various individuals in that congregation. And so perhaps John is using this this family language to kind of covertly communicate from one congregation to another. And that might actually explain as well uh, the greeting there in verse 13 from the elect sister. From your sister congregation over here, we're greeting you, our sister congregation over there. Now, having said all of that, I realize that not everybody's going to agree with that conclusion. But that to me, the the latter there, about this being a metaphor for the church, that seems to be the best explanation of the terminology as John uses it in this epistle. You feel free to study that further and uh, do some research on your own and feel free to share your ideas with me about about what you think that expression might mean. Well, let's turn our attention to uh, one final question. And this is a question that has been submitted to me, I don't know, dozens of times and... For whatever reason, I just keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And mainly it's because one of the many questions that gets submitted to me about heaven and about eternity. And usually my stock answer with those questions is pretty much the same. My answer is, I don't know. However, I am tonight going to throw you a bone and I am going to give this one question a try. And that question is this. Will we recognize one another in heaven? That question gets asked all the time, doesn't it? And I understand why we ask that question. Because we're planning to move to heaven someday, and we're planning to go and live there for all of eternity, and so we want to know what that's going to be like. What will that experience entail? Well... Let's just lay out a few ideas as it pertains to this question about knowing and recognizing each other in heaven. First of all, I just need to just state that the Bible never specifically addresses that question. 
The Bible never says, hey, this is exactly how it's going to be, that you will recognize each other or you will not recognize each other. The Bible never addresses that explicitly. And so I say that because anything else that I say about this really needs to be tempered with a heavy dose of, I'm not entirely sure. Now, what the Bible does tell us is that heaven, heaven is going to be very, very different from our existence here on earth. And I'm going to borrow from over in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, because I think this is a text that helps us to understand that maybe better than any other passage in the Bible. You know, what happens oftentimes with heaven when we get to thinking about that is we end up latching on to, to some of those metaphors that are used in Scripture. And, and, and we want to make those metaphors very real and very literal. We talk, start talking about streets of gold or the mansion over the hilltop, etc., etc. And as a result, we develop a very, a very physical, sometimes even a very materialistic association with heaven. Paul cautions about that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is actually doing some Q&A with the Corinthians because they had some questions. And in chapter 15, they had questions about the resurrection. What will that be like? What will we be like? And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse, let's pick up in verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. You keep on reading. Paul goes on to say that when you plant a seed, it dies, and then something grows from that seed that is entirely different from the seed. And we need to think about heaven in those terms. Heaven and our heavenly bodies are as different from earth and our earthly bodies as a watermelon is different from a watermelon seed. You know, think about it. Nobody who's never seen a watermelon before would ever look at that little black seed and say, oh, I know exactly what that's going to turn out to be. I know exactly what that's going to look like. It's going to be green, and it's going to be striped on the outside, and it's going to be hard in the shell, but inside it's going to be red and squishy. No. no there's, there's just no way of knowing that. It's too different. Now, having said that, though, there are a number of passages that seem to indicate that our identity, our personhood, that it goes on after death, and that we continue to be who we are even in heaven. Probably one of the best places to see that, I think, is in Mark chapter 9, at the Mount of Transfiguration. In Mark chapter 9, we have this amazing scene of Jesus being transfigured before three of the apostles, Peter, James, and John. But do you remember that... Jesus and Peter, James, and John, they weren't the only ones who were on that mountain that day. There we're told in Mark 9 and in verse 4 that there also appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Here's Elijah and Moses. They've been dead for centuries. But now here they are in the afterlife and guess what? They are still Elijah 
and Moses. In fact, in verse 5, Peter recognizes them, speaks of them as Elijah and Moses. And there's lots of other texts that are kind of like that. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're not dead. No, there's a sense in which they are living, not physically alive, but God is not a God of the dead. He is a God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're still living. In fact, in Revelation, the sixth chapter, the souls that are found under that altar, they are not extinguished or disintegrated into nothingness. No, they are discernible souls. They are real people who lived at a real time and in a real place on earth. And John recognized them as that, as the saints who had been slain for the Word of God. Now, maybe there's just one other thing that I would just toss in here that the Bible emphasizes over and over, and I think it gives us some clue about this idea of recognizing one another in heaven, and that is the fact, that's the fact that there's going to be great joy at this heavenly reunion. In 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, Paul here, he writes some things to the church at Thessalonica about the return of Jesus. As there was clearly some concern about their brothers and their sisters who had already passed on. And so Paul writes these words of comfort to encourage these Christians who were, who were left behind. In 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm reading here beginning in verse 13, Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that's the ones who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ... They will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, I believe the main emphasis here is on being with the Lord. That's the main thing. But there's no denying that Paul is describing a reunion of God's people. You're going to be with them. And he's describing here what a joyous occasion that will be. Don't be like the people who have no hope. No, look forward in an earnest expectation and hope of what that's going to be like. There seems to be the implication that the joy of that occasion is really predicated on our recognition of one another, that we know who each other are. You know, think about all those verses in the Old Testament that speak about so-and-so dying And the Bible will say, and he was gathered to his people. I think that speaks to this idea of a grand reunion. Or think about David's statement in 2 Samuel chapter 12 concerning that child who had died in its infancy. And remember David's confident statement there in 2 Samuel 12 when he said, I shall go to him. Can I ask, what comfort could David have of being with his child again if he's not able to distinguish his child in heaven from any other child. I believe that all of these passages and all of these ideas, they work together to suggest that our identities go on into heaven and that there will be recognition in heaven. Now, 
I know somebody's probably going to say, and there's going to be all kinds of follow-up questions from this. This is the danger of doing any of these heaven questions because it's going to engender follow-up questions. Somebody's going to say, well, well, how's all that going to work? You know, will we look like our younger self or like our older self? What should I be looking for? You know, are Elijah and Moses and all those other Bible heroes, are they going to be wearing name tags so that we know who they are in heaven? Or, you know, what about maybe a woman who had lawful marriages to more than one husband? You know, Jesus got asked that question before, don't you know? What's the logistics in all of those circumstances? And the answer is, I don't know. I've never been to heaven before, and so I don't know how all that plays out. I'll just trust the Lord that He knows what He's doing, and He's going to figure all of that out. But I do feel confident in saying that when we die, we're not going to lose our identities or that we're just going to get absorbed into the giant oneness. No. I believe the Bible teaches that we maintain our personhood and that we will, we will recognize one another in heaven. In fact, there is a song that we sometimes sing that I'd actually like to close with, and it echoes this hope that we all have of one day being reunited with the family of God and of the great joy that awaits us up there. It is the song, If We Never Meet Again. And if, in fact, if we never meet again on this side of heaven, then I most certainly hope that we will meet each other on that beautiful shore.